Chapter Eighteen of Alice Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeanie. Alice Adams by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Eighteen. That was a thought almost continuously in his mind, even when he was hardest at work, and as the days went on and he could not free himself, he became querulous about it. I guess I'm the biggest dang fool alive, he told his wife as they sat together one evening. I got plenty else to bother me without worrying my head off about what he thinks. I can't help what he thinks. It's too late for that. So why should I keep pestering myself about it? It'll wear off, Virgil, Mrs. Adams said reassuringly. She was gentle and sympathetic with him, and for the first time in many years he would come to sit with her and talk when he had finished his day's work. He had told her, evading her eye, Oh, I don't blame you. You didn't get after me to do this on your own account. You couldn't help it. Yes, but it don't wear off, he complained. This afternoon I was showing the men how I wanted my vats to go, and I caught my fool self standing there saying to my fool self, It's funny I don't hear how he feels about it from somebody. I was saying it aloud almost, and it is funny I don't hear anything. Well, you see what it means, don't you, Virgil? It only means he hasn't said anything to anybody about it. Don't you think you're getting kind of morbid over it? Maybe, maybe, he muttered. Why, yes, she said briskly. You don't realize what a little bit of a thing all this is to him. It's been a long, long while since the last time you even mentioned glue to him, and he's probably forgotten everything about it. You're off your base. It isn't like him to forget things, Adams returned peevishly. He may seem to forget him, but he don't. But he's not thinking about this, so you'd have heard from him before now. Her husband shook his head. Ah, that's just it, he said. Why haven't I heard from him? It's all your morbidness, Virgil. Look at Walter. If Mr. Lamb held this up against you, would he still let Walter stay there? Wouldn't he have discharged Walter if he felt angry with you? That dang boy, Adams said. If he wanted to come with me now, I wouldn't hardly let him. What do you suppose makes him so bull-headed? But hasn't he the right to choose for himself? she asked. I suppose he feels he ought to stick to what he thinks is sure pay. As soon as he sees that you're going to succeed with the glue works, he'll want to be with you quick enough. Well, he'd better get a little sense in his head, Adams returned crossly. He wanted me to pay him a three hundred dollar bonus in advance when anybody with a grain of common sense knows I need every penny I can lay my hands on. Never mind, she said. He'll come around later and be glad of the chance. He'll have to beg for it then. I won't ask him again. Oh, Walter will come out all right. You needn't worry. And don't you see that Mr. Lamb's not discharging him means that there's no hard feelings against you, Virgil? I can't make it out at all, he said, frowning. The only thing I can think it means is that J. A. Lamb is so fair-minded, and of course he is one of the fair-mindedest men alive. I suppose that's the reason he hasn't fired Walter. He may know, Adams concluded morosely, he may know that's just another thing to make me feel all the meaner, keeping my boy there on a salary after I've done him an injury. Now, now, she said, trying to comfort him, you couldn't do anybody an injury to save your life, and everybody knows it. Well, anybody ought to know I wouldn't want to do an injury, but this world isn't built so's we can do just what we want. He paused, reflecting. Of course, there may be one explanation of why Walter's still there. J. A. maybe hasn't noticed that he is there. There's so many I expect he hardly knows him by sight. Well, just do quit thinking about it, she urged him. It only bothers you without doing any good. Don't you know that? Don't I, though, he laughed, feebly. I know it better than anybody. How funny that is, when you know thinking about a thing only pesters you without helping anything at all, yet you keep right on pestering yourself with it. But why, she said, 
"'What's the use, when you know you haven't done anything wrong, Virgil? You said yourself you were going to improve the process so much it would be really different from the old one, and you'd really have a right to it.' Adams had persuaded himself of this when he yielded. He had found it necessary to persuade himself of it, though there was a part of him, of course, that remained unpersuaded, and this discomforting part of him was what made his present trouble. "'Yes, I know,' he said. "'That's true. But I can't quite seem to get away from the fact that the principle of the process is a good deal the same. Well, it's more than that. It's just about the same as the one he hired Campbell and me to work out for him. Truth is, nobody could tell the difference, and I don't know as there is any difference, except in these improvements I'm making.' Of course, the improvements do give me pretty near a perfect right to it, as a person might say, and that's one of the things I thought of putting in my letter to him, but I was afraid he'd just think I was trying to make up excuses, so I left it out. I kind of worried all the time I was writing that letter, because if he thought I was just making up excuses, why, it might set him just so much more against me. Ever since Mrs. Adams had found that she was to have her way, the depths of her eyes had been troubled by a continuous uneasiness and although she knew it was there and sometimes veiled it by keeping the revealing eyes averted from her husband and children she could not always cover it under the assumption of absent-mindedness the uneasy look became vivid and her voice was slightly tremulous now as she said but what if he should be against you although i don't believe he is of course you told me he couldn't do anything to you virgil no he said slowly i can't see how he could do anything it was just a secret not a patent the thing ain't patentable I've tried to think what he could do, supposing he was to want to, but I can't figure out anything at all that would be any harm to me. There isn't any way in the world it could be made a question of law. Only thing he could do would be to tell people his side of it and set him against me. I've been kind of waiting for that to happen all along. She looked somewhat relieved. So did I expect it, she said. I was dreading it most on Alice's account. It might have—well, young men are so easily influenced and all. But so far as the business is concerned, what if Mr. Lamb did talk? That wouldn't amount to much. It wouldn't affect the business, not to hurt. And besides, he isn't even doing that. No, anyhow not yet, it seems. And Adam sighed again, wistfully. But I would give a good deal to know what he thinks. Before his surrender he had always supposed that if he did such an unthinkable thing as to seize upon the glue process for himself, what he would feel must be an overpowering shame— but shame is the rarest thing in the world. What he felt was this unremittent curiosity about his old employer's thoughts. It was an obsession, yet he did not want to hear what Lamb thought from Lamb himself, for Adams had a second obsession, and this was his dread of meeting the old man face to face. Such an encounter could happen only by chance and unexpectedly. Since Adams would have avoided any deliberate meeting, so long as his legs had strength to carry him, even if Lamb came up to the house to see him. But people do meet unexpectedly, and when Adams had to be downtown he kept away from the wholesale district. One day he did see Lamb, as the latter went by in his car, impassive, going home to lunch, and Adams, in the crowd at a corner, knew that the old man had not seen him. Nevertheless, in a streetcar on the way back to his sheds an hour later, he was still subject to little shivering seizures of horror. He worked unceasingly seeming to keep at it even in his sleep, for he always woke in the midst of a planning and estimating that must have been going on in his mind, before consciousness of himself returned. Moreover, the work, thus urged, went rapidly, in spite of the high wages he had to pay his laborers for their short hours. It eats money, he complains, and in fact by the time his vats and boilers were in place it had eaten almost all he could supply. But, in addition to his equipment, he now owned a stock of raw material 
raw indeed, and when operations should be a little further along he was confident his banker would be willing to carry him. Six weeks from the day he had obtained his lease he began his glue-making. The terrible smells came out of the shed, and went writhing like snakes all through that quarter of the town. A smiling man, strolling and breathing the air with satisfaction, would turn a corner and smile no more, but hurry. However, colored people had almost all the dwellings of this old section to themselves, and although even they were troubled, there was recompense for them. Being philosophic about what appeared to them as in the order of nature, they sought neither escape nor redress and soon learned to bear what the wind brought them. They even made use of it to enrich those figures of speech with which the native impulses of colored people decorate their communications. They flavored metaphor, simile, and invective with it, and thus may be said to have enjoyed it. But the man who produced it took a hot bath as soon as he reached his home the evening of that first day when his manufacturing began. Then he put on fresh clothes, but after dinner he seemed to be haunted, and asked his wife if she noticed anything. She laughed and inquired what he meant. "'Seems to me as if that glue-work spell hadn't quit hanging on to me,' he explained. "'Don't you notice it?' "'No. What an idea!' He laughed, too, but uneasily, and told her he was sure the dang glue-smell was somehow sticking to him. Later he went outdoors and walked up and down the small yard in the dusk, but now and then he stood still, with his head lifted, and sniffed the air suspiciously. "'Can you smell it?' he called to Alice, who sat upon the veranda, prettily dressed and waiting in a reverie. "'Smell what, Papa?' "'The dang glue works.' She did the same thing her mother had done, laughed, and said, "'No, how foolish. Why, Papa, it's over two miles from here.' "'You don't get it at all?' he insisted. "'The idea! The air is lovely to-night, Papa.' The air did not seem lovely to him, for he was positive that he smelled the taint. He wondered how far it carried, and if J. A. Lamb would smell it too, out on his own lawn a mile to the north. And if he did, would he guess what it was?' Then Adams laughed at himself for such nonsense, but could not rid his nostrils of their disgust. To him the whole town seemed to smell of his glue-works. Nevertheless, the glue was making, and his sheds were busy. "'Guess we're stirring up this old neighborhood with more than the smell,' his foreman remarked one morning. "'How's that?' Adams inquired. "'That great big enormous old dead butterine factory across the street from our lot,' the man said. "'Nothing like setting an example to bring real estate to life.' That place is full of carpenters getting it ready to make a regular building again. Guess you ought to have the credit of it, because you was the first man in ten years to see any possibilities in this neighborhood. Adams was pleased, and, going out to see for himself, heard a great hammering and sawing from within the building, while carpenters were just emerging gingerly upon the dangerous roof. He walked out over the dried mud of his deep lot, crossed the street, and spoke genially to a workman who was removing the broken glass of a window on the ground floor. "'Here, what's all this howdy-do over here?' "'Going to fix her all up, I guess,' the workman said. "'Big job it is, too.' "'Should think it would be.' "'Yes, sir, a pretty big job. Pretty big job. Got men at it on all four floors and on the roof. They're doing it right.' "'Who's doing it?' "'Lord, I don't know. Some of these here big manufacturing corporations, I guess.' "'What's it going to be?' "'They tell me,' the workman answered, "'they tell me she's going to be a butterine factory again.' Anyways, I hope she won't be anything to smell like that glue-works you got over there, not while I'm working around her, anyways. That smells all right, Adam said. You soon get used to it. You do? The man appeared incredulous. Listen, I was over in France. It's a good thing them Dutchmen never thought of it. We'd have had to quit. Adams laughed and went back to his sheds. 
I guess my foreman was right, he told his wife that evening, with a little satisfaction. As soon as one man shows enterprise enough to found an industry in a broken-down neighborhood, somebody else is sure to follow. I kind of like the look of it. It'll help make our place seem sort of more busy and prosperous when it comes to getting a loan from the bank, and I got to get one mighty soon, too. I did think some that if things go as well as there's every reason to think they ought to, I might want to spread out and maybe get hold of that old factory myself, but I hardly expected to be able to handle a proposition of that size before two or three years from now, and anyhow there's room enough on the lot I got if we need more buildings some day. Things are going about as fine as I could ask. I hired some girls to-day to do the bottling, colored girls along about sixteen to twenty years old. After a while I expect to get a machine to put the stuff in the little bottles, when we begin to get good returns, but half a dozen of these colored girls can do it all right now, by hand. We're getting to have really quite a little plant over there. Yes, sir, quite a regular little plant." He chuckled, and at this cheerful sound, of a kind his wife had almost forgotten he was capable of producing, she ventured to put her hand upon his arm. They had gone outdoors after dinner, taking two chairs with them, and were sitting through the late twilight together, keeping well away from the front porch, which was not yet occupied, however. Alice was in her room, changing her dress. "'Well, honey,' Mrs. Adams said, taking confidence, not only to put her hand upon his arm, but to revive this disused endearment. "'It's grand to have you so optimistic. Maybe some time you'll admit I was right after all. Everything's going so well it seems a pity you didn't take this step, long ago.' Don't you think maybe so, Virgil?" Well, if I was ever going to, I don't know but I might as well have. I got to admit the proposition begins to look pretty good. I know the stuff'll sell, and I can't see a thing in the world to stop it. It does look good, and if—if—he paused. If what? she said, anxious. He laughed plaintively, as if confessing a superstition. It's funny—well, it's mighty funny about that smell. I've got so used to it at the plant I never seem to notice it at all over here. It's only when I get away. Honestly, can't you notice? Virgil! She lifted her hand to strike his arm chidingly. Do quit harping on that nonsense. Oh, of course it don't amount to anything, he said. A person can stand a good deal at just smell. It don't worry me any. I should think not, especially as there isn't any. Well, he said, I feel pretty fair over the whole thing. A lot better than I ever expected to, anyhow. I don't know as there's any reason I shouldn't tell you so. She was deeply pleased with this acknowledgment, and her voice had tenderness in it, as she responded, "'There, honey, didn't I always say you'd be glad if you did it?' Embarrassed, he coughed loudly, then filled his pipe and lit it. "'Well,' he said slowly, "'it's a puzzle.' "'Yes, sir, it's a puzzle.' "'What is?' "'Pretty much everything, I guess.' As he spoke, a song came to them from a lighted window over their heads. Then the window darkened abruptly, but the song continued, as Alice went down through the house to wait on the little veranda. Mi chiamo Mimi, she sang, and in her voice throbbed something almost startling in its sweetness. Her father and mother listened, not speaking until the song stopped with the click of the wire screen at the front door as Alice came out. My, said her father, how sweet she does sing. I don't know as I ever heard her voice sound nicer than it did just then. There's something that makes it sound that way, his wife told him. I suppose so, he said, sighing. I suppose so. You think— She's just terribly in love with him. I expect that's the way it ought to be, he said. Then he drew upon his pipe for reflection and became murmurous with the symptoms of melancholy laughter. It don't make things less of a puzzle, though, does it? In what way, Virgil? Why, here, he said. Here we go, through all this muck and moil to help fix things nicer for her at home, and what's it all amount to? Seems like she's just gone ahead the way she'd have gone anyhow. 
and now, I suppose, getting ready to up and leave us. Ain't that a puzzle to you? It is to me. Oh, but things haven't gone that far yet. Why, you just said. She gave a little cry of protest. Oh, they aren't engaged yet. Of course they will be. He's just as much interested in her as she is in him, but— Well, what's the trouble, then? You are a simple old fellow, his wife exclaimed, and then rose from her chair. That reminds me, she said. What of? he asked. What's my being simple remind you of? Nothing, she laughed. It wasn't you that reminded me. It was just something that's been on my mind. I don't believe he's actually ever been inside our house. Hasn't he? I actually don't believe he ever has, she said. Of course we must. She paused, debating. We must what? I guess I better talk to Alice about it right now, she said. He don't usually come for about half an hour yet. I guess I've got time. And with that she walked away, leaving him to his puzzles. End of chapter 18